Hello and welcome to the RBC Broadview Campus Sermon Podcast. Our mission here is loving God, loving people and seeing lives change. At RBC, our heart is to build a Jesus-centered community to see lives changed in multiple languages and locations. We hope you enjoy this message from one of our weekend services. To find out more about us, please visit our website, rbc.org.au. As, um, as Steph mentioned earlier, we are um, just about to begin, we are beginning right now, um, a new series. And uh, it's going to be a really great series as well. So um, I didn't say before, but my name's Ruben, and um, very warm welcome if you are uh, new or um, not new. Uh, a warm welcome to all of us as we, um, as we join together in hearing God's Word this morning. Uh, so we, uh, we come into this series, uh, which is called First Loved, and uh, I guess it draws on a very significant aspect of who our God is, uh, that God is love, is one of those things which is uh, just uh, widely and broadly known about God. Of course, it's a, uh, it's a quote from 1 John 4, uh, verse 16, but would have to be up there with one of the best-known uh, words of the Bible, God is love. And so the idea for this series, uh, it is to really focus in over a number of weeks on this aspect of who our God is, uh, that He is love. So it's a little bit like a, a series where you might um, think topically about, you could talk about the perfections or the characteristics of God, except we're just focusing on one and um, so instead of like all-knowing or all-powerful or all-wise or whatever, we're focusing on just one aspect of God's character and we're exploring it from different angles. So the other thing that's going to happen across this series is we're not just going to discover God's love, hopefully in, in all sorts of wonderful ways and, um, and to see that from different angles, but it's also going to be a chance to see how it is shown at different points and in different ways across the Bible story. Um, so it's going to be, in a way, a, a kind of Bible overview as well, as we track through this um, idea of uh, God being love. Um, so you can see that starting with today, we're going to be talking about creation and covenant, but in future weeks, we've got things like liberation and justice, prophet and promise, the incarnation, that is God becoming human in Jesus, sacrifice and resurrection, impartation, uh, the giving of the Spirit, and future, and future hope. So that gives you a bit of a, a, a taster and it makes you excited, makes me excited to hear what's going to be coming in, in future weeks and I think it's going to be really good and really interesting. So this week, Creation and Covenant, the way I want to work through this and, and attempt to unpack how creation shows us something of God's love um, is we're going to hopefully do it somewhat logically. I'm going to spend um, uh, a, the first chunk of the talk thinking about creation and God's love, then the second part, thinking about covenant and God's love, and then try to draw both of those together by thinking about some implications or responses that we might have um, to how God's revealed Himself in each of those ways, in creation and covenant. And if you're not sure about what that means, that's fine, we're going to unpack it as, as we go through. Um, so that's the plan for today, and so we start then with how does creation teach us about God's love? Initially, it might sound like a strange question. If I asked you to complete the sentence, creation in the Bible shows you X about God, how would you fill in that blank? Like I think for, for many of us, we might say creation shows us how powerful God is. We've sung that 
today, or how creative God is. You might be really taken by the variety in creation. Or maybe how wise God is, the way He's put things together in just the right way, or how unrivaled God is. He can just speak and it comes into being. Um, There's lots of different ways to fill in that gap, but for you, does love naturally sit in that gap? Creation shows us how loving God is. Does that work for you in, in your mind? Does creation teach us something about God's love? Well, it turns out there are lots of ways we can uh, see God's love displayed in creation. And I think a good way into uh, this way of seeing things is to ask a why question. That is, why does God create? Why does God create? All right, some possibilities. Why could it be that God creates? Uh, Option one, I'm going to suggest, is maybe, and we're just feeling these out, okay, if you don't like it, I'll give you some other options as well, but option one is maybe he was lonely. Okay, maybe God creates because he was lonely. So imagine God sitting there for all eternity, no beginning, just chilling out, doing God things, whatever that is, for a very, very long time, without anything else going on. He wakes up and thinks, things are kind of quiet around here and there's not much to do except for God things. Maybe I should make a universe, for example, and, and so off he goes, so that he'll no longer be alone. Is that what's going on as God creates? Well, if God were uh, what theologians call a monad, that is just like a solo, um, unitary entity, perhaps you could make the argument that God creates because he is bored and lonely and needs something to do or someone to engage with someone to engage with in relationship. However, there are hints from the very first page of the Bible that God is not a monad. And it becomes super clear as Jesus steps into the world that God is actually an eternally loving community of Father, Son and Spirit. Um, He's not this kind of undifferentiated solo being, He's actually a community of Father, Son, and Spirit, what Christians have come to call the Trinity. This means that in addition to there never having been a time when God did not exist, He is eternal, it also means there has never been a time when God has not had company, so to speak. So part of God being self-sufficient is that He is, that the Father, Son, and Spirit have eternally been able to delight in relationships of love within the very being of God. God, in that sense, has never been lonely. Now, this is uh, sort of going over your head of us a little bit early in the day for Trinitarian theology. Um, The summary here is just that. God has never, ever been lonely. So option one can't work. All right, we'll put that to one side. Option one's no good. He didn't create because he is lonely. Option two, maybe he created because he needed something. So this is another idea we might have. Maybe he created because he needs something. It might sound like a strange thing to say that God needs something, but it is actually a surprisingly common feature of ancient creation stories, uh, including the creation stories that were around when uh, Genesis 1 to 3, the kind of main creation story, I suppose, in the Bible, took the form that it has, uh, that we have it written down in today. 
Um, you may, not, may or may not be aware of this, but a, a really common view in Old Testament um, scholarship is that Genesis, the Genesis creation story, in, its, in the form we have it in our Bibles, is, is written alongside and at a time where there are kind of rival um, creation stories. And the Bible's creation story kind of takes pot shots at the other creation accounts and tries to show how different and how much better our God is. And in the process, it teaches us that God is really, really unlike the gods of the other nations. Some key ways that that comes through is in how orderly the Bible's account of creation is compared to the others. Uh, In many of the other creation accounts, there's chaos because there are many gods and they're all fighting with each other and creation kind of arises out of this almost a war or battle, um, that kind of idea. But in the Bible, there is just one God and He is all-powerful and the world comes together simply at His command. He says, I want it to be this way, and it is, and it's good. Um, so that sort of idea is, is a big contrast. Another way we see Genesis taking pot shots or kind of mocking other rival stories is in the details, like in, even just in words, like the way the sun and moon are described, uh, for example. So uh, the words sun and moon in um, these ancient languages, ancient Semitic languages, they happen to also be the names of gods, for the other nations, like sun and moon were the names for gods, and so when Genesis talks about God creating them, uh, it does this really interesting thing, it doesn't actually name them using the proper words, it just simply calls them big light and little light. Um, (laughs) It makes the same point, but it makes a very powerful point, doesn't it? That God just, He makes them, they're not gods, they're just part of His creation. But to come back to our point about God creating because He needs something, a really common feature in these other creation accounts especially uh, comes through in terms of why humans are created. And that is that in many of these other accounts, the gods are sick and tired of having to work for their own food. And so they make humans as a kind of class of slaves who might bring them and supply for their needs. Uh, Often that's a large part of what sacrifice is about in these other religions. Um, So they make humans to be kind of slaves to provide for their every need so they can just relax and take it easy for a while. Interesting story. But think about how different that is to the Bible. What does God say uh, to the humans as He makes food for them in the garden? It's not get to work, harvesting it and bring it to me. The true God, of course, has no need for food or anything else. Instead, he says to them, all this food I've made, in all its variety and deliciousness, guess what? It's for you. I made it for you. So enjoy it. Creation in the Bible, then, is a great display of God's generosity and delight in sharing. So, if creation is not about making God less lonely... And it's not about God being lazy and needing slaves, people to act like his butlers or something like that. Then what can we say that creation is about? Well, I think a pretty good answer is something like this, that God creates as an overflow of the love that the persons of the Trinity have had for each other for all eternity. Another way of saying this is he creates not because he has to, but because he can. And he creates in order to give and share what is his with others. That is, with us. The overflow of the triune God's love is seen in the opening pages of the Bible where you see 
Um, and this is just hints at, the, at this point in the Bible story, the spirit hovering over the chaotic waters in the beginning. Uh, God determines to create, but he does so, does so through the word, which um, as we come to the beginning of John's gospel, we find out is Jesus. Um, it's also seen in how um, we read in places like Colossians chapter 1, that the creation is intended as a gift, a gift specifically for the Son and something that will bring glory and thanks to God, which is really the proper response to something being given as a gift. If glory and thanks is what uh, God um, creates for, then that would fit if creation is given as a gift, an overflow of His love. Uh, So from Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. That is, everything's been created, including you and me, as a gift for Jesus. Okay, that's, um, uh, that's creation. I want to think about covenant next, but I realise I've run through things perhaps fairly quickly, and so I do just want to give a brief pause and ask, are there any questions or just anything that you feel I need to clarify? Because, uh, yeah, like I said, I do feel like I've, I've sort of rushed there, but if anyone just wants to ask anything for clarification, I can certainly try. Hopefully the main points make sense through there, okay? So, God doesn't create because He has any need, um, it's actually because He can and because He desires to give it as a gift, specifically a gift for Jesus. So, it's a, it's a display of love, it's a relational thing, God's creation. Is that all right? Okay, we'll keep going. Um, so, how does the covenant next uh, teach us about God's love? So, we've done creation, now covenant, um, we're, we're particularly focusing on the covenant with Abraham. Uh, this covenant is repeated a few times, again, in the book of Genesis, uh, we're just going to see how it, um, how it is spoken of in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. And this is one of those key verses that is super important, actually, for understanding um, much of the rest of the Bible story. It's one of those, those verses that just kicks off uh, a large um, amount of God's plans and um, uh, it kicks off into God having a people of His own and... Um, how God will bless those people, but not just those people, who will make those people a blessing for everyone else as well. Um, we're going to look at those verses in just a minute, but a couple of context things to say that will help us see how God's covenant with Abraham uh, teaches us about His love are these. Uh, the main context to know is that God's choice of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, it's a continuation of, or an outworking of the promise that God made in Genesis chapter 3 to the man and the woman, to Adam and Eve. As they ruin everything in Genesis chapter 3, there's sin and, and rebellion and, and all kinds of um, problems flow from that. There is also, alongside God um, judging and pronouncing curses as a response to what they've done, alongside that there is also a promise. A promise that comes out of God's grace and is focused on one of Eve's children being the serpent crusher. They promise that there will one day be one who uh, the snake will strike the heel of, but that one will crush the snake. It's a promise that the man and woman's sin won't be the end of the story and that there is hope and that God will make things right again. 
Um, so what happens in between Genesis 3, Genesis 12, is lots of things, but in a large part it can be summarised as sin just um, ruining relationships and the world. Uh, it's a story of spin, sin um, spiralling out of control and um, uh, it's sort of one disastrous sin to the next. So uh, alongside that, we see God persisting in loving people and in particular loving Abraham and his family. So you kind of get the sense as you read Genesis 1 through 11, or 3 through 11, that perhaps God will get fed up and just give up on the whole thing, which He almost does in the flood. But when you come to chapter 12, it becomes very clear that God is going to persist. He's going to persist in faithfulness to His promises. Uh, so it shows that something really important about God's love, that is, it's really, really patient. So alongside sin and rebellion, uh, we see that God's love is really, really persistent and really, really patient. He's faithful to His promises. That also comes through when you consider who Abraham is. Um, we're not told that he is an, an idolater, someone who worships other gods, but his father is certainly identified with idolatry in Joshua 24. And the stories about Abraham make it very clear that he is not, he's not a perfect person by a long shot. He is simply commended for being faithful or upright, expressed most clearly in listening to what God tells him and believing it. But there's no sense in which Abraham earns God's love. God is just pleased to bestow it upon him. So God's love is a gift and God's love doesn't give up. So uh, let's look at the promises themselves, these verses from Genesis 12, where the Lord says to Abraham, um, hopefully they're on screen, you can read along with me, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. And here are the promises. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Uh, many of us know that the story, uh, at, the, that at this point in the story, Abraham is very, very old. Um, his wife Sarah is too, well past the usual age of childbearing. Yet God doesn't just promise them a child. He says, I'm going to make your offspring into a great nation. God doesn't just promise to bless Abraham. He, he, he promises to bless, well, not even just his family, like a few others through him. He promises to bless that all the peoples of the earth through him. Uh, this is a promise which plays out partially in lots of ways across the Old Testament story. You keep getting um, hints that God is making good on his promises, but then it doesn't kind of work out, and then he's making good on his promises again, and then it doesn't quite work out. But it does finally work out in a full and final way in the descendant of Abraham, as Jesus becomes the one who blesses all the people of the world. So what does this teach us about the nature of God's love? I think aside from that faithful commitment to his promises, that patience and persistence that God has, it also shows us how expansive and extravagant God's love is. When, God's lo when, when God loves, He doesn't do it in a cautious or a partial way. He goes all out. To be loved by God is to be fully and truly and extravagantly loved by the community of love that is at the heart of the universe, the Trinity at the heart of the universe. 
There's a really wonderful part of the New Testament that I think captures this aspect of God's love really well. So I just want to read from Ephesians chapter 1, uh, from verse 3, which says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with, the pleasure, with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. When God loves, he doesn't do it in parts. He does it extravagantly. And we can also say that the covenant with Abraham, it introduces us to the idea of God's unconditional love. Uh, that's something else that comes through really clearly, isn't it? The nature of the covenant with Abraham, it doesn't have an if clause in it, does it? It's just God saying, I'm going to bless you. And that's just the way it's going to be. That's all there is to it. Okay, so God's love seen in creation, God's love seen in covenant. Uh, I want to try and draw both of these things together with a couple of implications and, and uh, responses uh, for us. Some of them will apply more strongly to you than others, depending on the situation you find yourself in life. Um, but hopefully just a few thought starters and ways that we might, uh, we might think about responding to what we've heard today. Um, so the first one is that... Uh, we've seen how God's love is displayed in a way that shows his commitment and faithfulness to promises. Um, so part of what it is for God to love is to be faithful and committed to the promises that he makes. If we're called to be like God, which I think we are, uh, this would be something to really think about in terms of how we conduct ourselves in relationship with other people uh, and in community. What can it mean for us to uh, mirror or to kind of follow the example of God in this aspect of his love, uh, the way he shows love through being faithful to his promises? And the things that come to mind for me would be uh, things like letting our yes be yes and no be no. Uh, thinking about Matthew, as Jesus speaks in Matthew chapter 5, verse 37, um, being people whose word is able to be relied upon. Um, that could play out in business dealings. Maybe it's uh, thinking about paying workers their wages, if you think about James chapter 5, verse 4, or giving honest work to those who um, are, um, are over you. Colossians 3, 23 would be an example of that. Uh, it could be in relationships more generally, just that faithfulness and persistence, uh, tolerating when things uh, do go wrong, which they do in every relationship, but having that same sort of persistence that God shows. Um, especially maybe, I'm not sure if I want to say especially in marriage, but it's just the one that I can see most clearly in the Scriptures, where faithfulness um, is really um, at the heart of what God wants to be the experience in those, in those relationships. Marriage um, is a really important picture, a little picture of um, the committed love that Jesus has for the church. And so um, there's a, a particular encouragement um, for this kind of love to be a part of our marriages, if that's the um, situation in life that you find yourself in. 
Um, but also friendship, uh, as comes through in many places, particularly in the wisdom literature, that faithfulness in friendship um, that you see in places like Proverbs is really commended. Uh, next, I have a, a particular implication for marriages, and uh, I've been thinking about this, whether to say, um, to say much on this or not. It's, it's a tricky one because um, what I'm about to talk about is the idea of being open to welcoming children into marriages, and that can be just a hard conversation to have sometimes because I just don't know what's going on in everyone's life here. It might be a topic that um, is quite personal, potentially a hard one to hear, um, and so I want to um, just acknowledge that but also think it, it can be um, a really helpful thing for us to think about in terms of how does God's love connect with the idea of welcoming children. So here's just an idea. Um, as creation, um, as we spoke about creation being about, uh, in, a, in a sense, God's hospitality, sharing something that was His with us, welcoming us into that opportunity to love Him um, uh, and to enjoy that which He's been able to enjoy for all eternity. Um, there is something about that that is also mirrored in families. A husband and wife kind of having everything they need in a sense. Why would you ruin that with children, some people say. Like, <laughs> it sounds kind of, I don't know, does that sound, it does sound kind of wrong to say that, doesn't it? But it's, it's a thought that I'm sure has crossed every um, husband and wife's minds. Like, why should I ruin this perfect thing that I've got by welcoming in an outsider? But there is a sense in which that's exactly what God's done in creation. Um, he's welcomed us into uh, what is his. It's him looking to share what is perfect with another, an outsider. Um, and so, like I said, I do give this point with a few caveats. I realise that there is, um, there is sometimes pain and difficulty in having... Uh, pain because of the difficulty of having children for some couples. Um, and I'm certainly not speaking to anyone in particular here, but just giving something for all of us to consider, and that is that Christian marriages should, as a matter of hospitality reflect God's own love and be open to welcoming children at some point. Um, okay, so the last one is reflecting God's generous self-giving love in our own relationships uh, and in our own resources. So um, this is just thinking about how God's love in creation and in covenant uh, really uh, helps us to see how generous and, and self-giving and open-handed God is uh, in the way that He expresses love. So the idea that everything we have is a gift. God's made it, He's given it to us for our enjoyment. That same idea of giving and sharing should also be a feature of the way we use everything that God has given us. Um, so, uh, perhaps a response for us is to think, how can I make sure that I'm being open-handed with everything I have? Not being someone who kind of hoards or, um, or fails to share what we have with others. It's difficult because um, scarcity, the idea that there's not enough to go around for everyone, is really at the heart of a lot of modern economic theory. The problem is that that idea of scarcity is not at the heart of the kingdom's economics. And it's not at the heart of creation. When God creates, He makes a world which has plenty of everything. If there is lack, it's not because there's not enough resources in God's world, it's that people are acting wrongly towards each other. They're not sharing, they're hoarding, they're cheating others out of what is theirs and those kind of things. Um, kingdom economics is expressed by Jesus in uh, something like Luke chapter 12. I'll just read it and, and you'll hear, I don't think it's on the screen. Um, Consider how the wildflowers grow, I think this will be familiar. They don't labour or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendour was dressed like one of these. 
If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? Don't set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Don't worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Um, The really important part there is to seek his kingdom, which uh, gives us a a sense into how needs are meant to be met. Um, God will provide through the community of God's people living as he desires, by sharing, by open-handedness, by looking um, to serve the needs of others around us. Okay, so um, there's a couple of ideas in terms of how we might, um, uh, yeah, some implications or how we might respond um, to what we've learnt about God's love in creation, God's love in, uh, in the covenant, and of course there's many more, but um, for the sake of time, I'm going to leave it at those three and do encourage us to be thinking and talking with each other, um, perhaps afterwards, over coffee, um, what are some things in your own life that you think connect with what you've learnt about God's love in creation and covenant? So, uh, I'm going to lead us in prayer now and uh, we'll continue uh, with, with singing and, and the rest of our time together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for um, uh, everything that we've seen today in terms of your, uh, your delight uh, in creating, uh, not because you had to in any way, but just because you could and uh, for all of the wonderful um, uh, enjoyment and delight that has flown from that for us. Um, we pray that your own generosity, your own hospitality, your own um, uh, welcoming of us into, into existence, into your world, uh, might really shape our lives and behaviours as well. Do make us people who um, are able to not just receive everything that you give us, but know how to, um, how to share that with others as well. And we thank you so much for what uh, you did in response to our rebellion, that you didn't give up on us, that your love is so persistent so faithful, so generous, and so gracious. Again, may you please shape us uh, to not just receive that grace and to be recipients of your favour in your promises. Um, Make us people, we pray, that would be faithful towards others as well, Um, that that in our relationships and in all our dealings, um, we might mirror something of this aspect of your love. Um, So we thank you and praise you as the, the kind and gracious and and faithful God that you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope that you enjoyed this podcast. If this message has impacted you in some way, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us through The Hub online at thehub.rbc.org.au or through our social media links in the show notes. See you next time.